Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. Proudly supported by the Judith Nielsen Institute. It's Saturday, March 20th, and you're listening to Backchat, where we break down the news you don't want to miss. Before we begin today, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Gadigal land and pay our respects to Elders past and present. I'm Chantelle Alcouri. And hey, I'm Charles Rushforth. On the show today, we're talking the March for Justice rally that happened this week and what international students are going into ahead of this new semester. But first, the world was stunned on March 15, 2019, when 51 people were murdered across two mosques in Christchurch, orchestrated by an Australian man. We speak to a family member of the victims on the two-year anniversary of this horrific event. And look, as always, we want to hear from you too. You can join in the conversation by texting in on 0409 945 945 or you can always tweet us at BackchatFBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Laurel Goss lost her aunt, Linda Armstrong, in the 2019 Christchurch Mosque attacks. By some hideous coincidence, March 15, the day an armed man shot and killed 50 people, including her own family, is also her birthday. Laurel spoke with Backchat to talk about how a random act of cruelty changed her life two years ago and how she's managed to find peace since. I'm uh, Laurel. I'm a New Zealand uh, Pakia. I lived in Australia for a fair amount of time, about half of my life, and now I'm living in Germany, in Berlin. Linda Armstrong, she was my auntie on my dad's side, so my dad's sister. And yeah, she was a, a victim in the, the 2019 Christchurch mosque shooting. Auntie found uh, Islam faith. Yeah, many, many years ago, I was still a, a kid when she converted and they sat us all the cousins down and explained it to us. And, um, you know, it was just something that happened. I don't remember it being a, a huge deal. It didn't change Linda and the way that she was. Her, she's always been like a huge personality. Um, she always knew herself and was really authentic in herself. So March 15 is actually my birthday. So I remember that day quite well. I woke up and my uh, partner at the time took me for a birthday lunch. Um, after lunch, we got inside the car and turned on the radio and there was a uh, real panic and live updates happening about a, a, sh- a, a shooter. It took me about a minute before I sort of went, oh, okay, it's Friday. Okay, well, Auntie Linda will be at the mosque now, um, you know, to pray because that was every Friday. That's what she would do. I tried calling my auntie, but the uh, the phone went straight to voicemail. We, we all were just, um, she's okay. She'll be okay. We She'll be um, helping other people. She's just too busy to get to the phone. It was my dad who called me up um, to actually confirm that she had been killed. And I just remember just breaking down and crying and I couldn't stop. That was... I think the, the the biggest feeling I had was just grief. There wasn't so much anger. Like, why would this happen? How could this happen? You know, she didn't deserve this. 
it wasn't until two days after the actual shooting that that was confirmed um, that Auntie Linda had been killed um, in the Linwood Mosque. But we only found out because of the New Zealand media. They had printed out uh, based on interviews um, from eyewitnesses. And then the police actually confirmed with us uh, about two days after the um, articles came out. It takes as long as it takes, but the fact that the, the you know the media got wind before the families found out, it was a bit a bit shocking. There was um, a call to prayer that happened on the following two Fridays after the event, um, where the prime minister came and spoke. And um, as awful as it was, it was also a very very special time that I've never seen anything like. Um, people strangers coming together to sing New Zealand songs and to uplift each other and to say like we are we are here for you and we are together in this there was a huge huge um it was like shared grief even people that weren't uh like you know affected with in their families or friendship circles around New Zealand that um it was like this really shared beautiful support of the Muslim, the, the Muslim community that had never, I've never seen this on such a scale before. Most people in Christchurch knew someone or knew someone that knew someone because it's New Zealand, it's, it's nothing like Sydney, it's much smaller. Everyone sort of knows someone or is related to each other. <laughs> what I did notice in the inquest was that uh, the shooter was a part of a, a rifle club that had had some had some worried citizens sort of bring up to the police like, hey, you should go check this out. And they checked it out and they said, quote, oh, he's just a silly duffer. He, you, don't worry about him. And this is somebody that's um, going around bragging about, about um, yeah, how, <sighs> yeah. Sorry, I lost my... No, no, totally fine. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the message that really came to me after reading this inquest was that somebody saw something and somebody said something, but the police said, hey, don't worry about it. About a month before my Auntie Linda was killed, we hadn't spoken for a couple of years over a personal fight that we'd had. And when we saw each other um, the month before, we hugged and we said, it's water under the bridge, let's move forward. Yeah, that's, that's probably my main message from it, is just to talk to your family. Like, it's, you only have one chance with them. You just heard from Laurel Goss, who lost her aunt in the Christchurch massacre two years ago. Laurel's an old friend of mine. Um, we used to work at a bar together in Newtown. Um, yeah, obviously a few years ago I saw that this had happened and um, I received word from her that she was, yeah, ready to share her side of the story. She's incredibly brave and we thank her so much for opening up to us on yeah, Backchat. Heartbreaking to listen to, but don't go anywhere because up next we hear about how international students have cracked after no support last year. But first, a song. This one's Clean by FBI's Independent Artist of the Week, Do Ramada. I can't believe it. This guy's dropped over 30 singles this year alone. That's absolutely crazy. Um, language warning ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
structure. Text 0409-945-945. International students in Australia have been facing issues since pre-COVID, with the pandemic only magnifying this. These days, it sort of feels like I'm being um, drawn and quartered by direct debit things coming out of my account, um, petrol. So, look, I can only imagine what it would be like to be um, an international student paying those full fees for the Opal card along with rent, taxes and the, yeah, increased loss of hours and jobs that are happening in Australia at the moment. Yeah, and despite contributing billions to the Australian economy, international students are excluded from the Australian government's response, left feeling neglected and unsupported. Will Australia no longer be the go-to country for international students after COVID-19? Joining us today to discuss his experiences as an international student is Ismail Hawke, studying at the Western Sydney University. Hey Ismail, thanks so much for joining us. Hey everyone, thanks to be, uh, glad to be here with you. Last year was really tough on international students. What new or continued issues are they facing this university semester? The continued issue would be um, the upfront payment of uh, tuition fees because as COVID has impacted us in our homelands as well, that means the economy hasn't picked up. Uh, the exchange rates depreciated, which means that tuition fees, which we had planned for before, has now become a lot more expensive due to the changes in exchange rate. And we still have to pay upfront, which means very few universities are offering a payment plan, or even if there are, you have to pay a fairly exorbitant amount upfront, about like 10% to 15%, to be in, to ensure that you are able to get on that payment plan. So that's one of the problems. But secondarily, I think a lot of classes are still online, and we're having to pay exorbitant rates for NBN or like uh, high frequency data, etc. So I don't think we're receiving enough um, support on that end either. You mentioned the university and their payment plan. How do you feel the government and your use of university elsewhere is falling short during the pandemic? So I think um, the first problem that we faced was that we did not receive uh, the kind of moral and mental support from the government that we were expecting. Um, the problem that arose was when the pandemic first started, we were simply told to go back home if we were unable to care for ourselves. Um, I think that basically set us up with the expectation that we were left abandoned and stranded in Australia. So I think if there were more supporting programs such as helping us get NBN, helping us um, get extended hours at work because a lot of people were left jobless, who were expecting to pay rent, who were expecting to cover the living costs through those jobs. Similarly, I don't think enough was done to help us with accommodations or rent freezes or even setting up like charities where we could get like groceries, etc. because we did not see this coming and a lot of us had not planned for this and therefore we were kind of left without the necessary provision to go on with our day-to-day lives. How do you think um, your attitudes in terms of studying in Australia have changed since you've arrived here? I would say they have changed, but not to the extent um, to the, towards people. So I think that the Australian community has been fairly supportive on its own role. I think community support and charities and um, community organisations have been helpful. However, I do believe there's been a lack of government support. And therefore, moving forward, I do not know if students would be expecting this government or government in the future to be able to cater to them. And therefore, I've seen a lot of online chatter as to um, the abandonment of international students and whether people should come here still. So that's one of the things, like moving forward, I do not know if in future I would like to stay here or not. I also do not know in future if the government would be supporting if there's another crisis coming around. 
You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 with Chantelle and Charles. We're speaking to Ishmael Hawk about how international students are coping during the uni semester. Ishmael do you think that these attitudes are going to affect the number of international students coming here in the future? I do think so, um, for two particular reasons. Number one, from the leading government authority, we heard that if we're unable to take care of ourselves, we should go back. Barring the exorbitant uh, flight costs at that time and travel bans placed by our own home countries, I think it was not the best thing to say because at that time we were looking for a place for more support. We are looking for some kind of mental support. But instead, what we got was take care of yourself or you can leave. So I think that kind of attitude was highly publicised when it came to Australian education and that has impacted students because they now believe that if any crisis comes up, they'll be on their own. And if you're away from your home country, away from families, away from all your support structures, you look to the government, you look to the authorities, and if they're the ones abandoning you, you're not likely to want to come here in future for education. Just finally, Ishmael, what's at least one way the Australian community can support international students? Just, um, so I think fears for our humanity we are international students, but we are people just like you. Are We have the exact same needs. If you have emergency rations, emergency responses, if you're organising kitchens, if you're organising um, community events, call us to it, make us like feel welcome. Because I think those are ways you can include us. If you are doing something for students who are Australian citizens, try to extend that to those who are international students as well. Because, like I said, we are simply the same people. We just come from a different country, and that's the only thing that's different about us. We make the same contributions, and we love the people around us in our communities the same amount as those who are Australian citizens do. So just extend the same humanity to us as you do to all those around you. Absolutely. That's great insight, and thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Happy to be here. That was Western Sydney uni student Ishmael Mulhawk on how international students have struggled over the last year. Stick around because next, Australia comes to terms with rape culture and issues surrounding consent. Backchat producer Rebecca Manebog joins us in just a few minutes to discuss the uprising against gender violence and the Monday rally. But first, we've got another song. This is Aussie Fijian rapper Jesua with XXL from the newly released EP Tropics. Language warning, you're on FBI 94.5. You're an FBI 94.5. I'm a uh, Laurel. I'm a New Zealand. Thousands of women are staging March for Justice gatherings to demand action from politicians on sexism, misogyny, and dangerous workplace cultures. We are all here today, not because we want to be here, but because we have to be here. Not far from here, such marches, even now, are being met with bullets. We're currently witnessing a national conversation about sexual assault. In the past month alone, we've seen allegations of misconduct in Parliament, demands for better consent education in schools, and people from a number of different industries coming forward with their own stories. On Monday, a number of March for Justice rallies were held across 40 cities and towns in Australia, protesting gendered violence and sexism. Did you attend the March for Justice rally on Monday? You should text us in on 0409 945 945. 
Backjet producer Rebecca Menebog was at the Town Hall rally earlier this week and joins us now, a warning that this following conversation will include discussions of sexual abuse. Hey, Beck, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me this morning. So can you recap the day of the rally? Because watching it on TV, it seemed so powerful. I can't imagine what it was like there. Absolutely. So everything just snowballed. We're so sick and tired of how we're being treated, how we're looked at, what we're yelled at on the street. And it's just snowballed into this massive thing when it's like, bloody, it's 2020. We shouldn't be having 2021, actually. Sorry. (laughs) Bloody pandemic's on my mind. But we're just so sick of it. The case of Sarah and what what happened to Brittany was just so despicable and we're so saddened that it's continuing and it's like history repeating itself. So we're done and we've had enough. Hey, Beck, can you walk us through some of the speakers who spoke on Monday? Absolutely. So we had um, an ally, Michael Bradley, from um, uh, an ally from Marky Lawyers. He spoke about the injustices um, in terms of sexual assault cases and basically the law doing us bad. And we've also had um, a lot of First Nation ladies come up and speak about their experiences and reminding us about the stolen generation and how sexual assault and gendered violence began at the start of time. And, yeah, it's just so sad. The energy was there. We're all angry and upset. And I even had myself crying at one point because the stories that they shared with us was just heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, how did all that resonate with you? Yeah, so um, being a woman of colour of myself, I have experienced assault in the past um, from strangers. Um, And what makes it worse is that it wasn't, like, it shouldn't happen at any time, but these times were out of the ordinary. I was on my way to work and I'd have men approach me and just ask me inappropriate questions like, are you wearing a fly today and stuff like that. And then also having someone basically assault me with my partner next to me as well was so disturbing. And fortunately for some of those cases, it was handled by the police, but that's not the case for everyone else and sometimes it ends in murder and the death of people and luckily I had someone to protect me but it's not always like that. Yeah Sarah Everand um, that story was heartbreaking and she didn't have anybody with her we think oh I'm so lucky that I have someone with me I can't imagine what it was like for her and Speaking of consent, this week, um, New South Wales Police Commissioner, I don't know if you guys heard, Michael Fuller, he suggested an app to register consent um, where he even admitted that it was a terrible idea. Mm. And I think we can all admit that it was a terrible (laughs) idea. There's a lot of discussion happening about it. But even watching Q&A yesterday, there were some people who kind of agreed um, or not even agreed, were just like, oh, I'm grateful that he's discussing it at least. Um, What do you guys think of this idea? Um, it sort of like really pushes the onus um, even further away from men to talk about consent. It's like it takes it to a remote atmosphere of like a digital platform instead of it being a conversation, um, which it yeah really should be as an organic thing that yeah is verbally expressed, not something that you have to swipe over. Yeah. yeah. I think people forget it's an ongoing thing. It should be an ongoing thing, mm. constantly checking in with the person. Um, it's not just a yes or no. And then you're sorted and you you don't even think about the issues of what if she was drunk or what if, you know, uh, he's swiped it for her. You know, there's so Absolutely. much to take into account that this was just like a... I've had some bad app, app ideas in my time, but, yeah. you know, like... <laughs> Not as bad as this, at least you can yeah. say that. Yeah. 
pet food delivery service. That didn't work, but food, yeah, no. yeah, this is worse. That was a great idea, especially uh, having a uh, pug. Thank you. Yeah, you know. Anyway. <laughs> so that's good. We, we, yeah, we've we established that. that is a good idea. Okay, <laughs> yeah. good. Thank you. Not you heard it here one. first. Yeah. Um, don't take our idea of copywriting that yeah. right now. <laughs> Beck, what about you? What do you think of the app? Well, it kind of reminds me of the case of Eudris Dixon. And she was texting someone on the way home right before she unfortunately passed away. So if she's texting someone and she's literally a street away saying, I'm almost home, but, like, how's that app going to, like, help you out? Like, she thought she was safe, but I don't think an app where I'm going to be, like, having consent or whatever it's just it's just bollocks you know like like why would you think of that just angers me and like how are you gonna say it's a terrible idea and keep saying it like think before you speak mate like what's the go (laughs) it really made it like a contract which it shouldn't be it should be an ongoing thing and um yeah i don't know what he was thinking when he when he mentioned that. But even ScoMo earlier this week, he mentioned, well, he compared these protests to what's happening in Myanmar and, you know, we weren't getting shot at the rallies. So it was like, oh, you're so lucky. What do you think about that comment? I mean, yeah, it kind of felt like a bit of a dog whistle to the right in the sense that we should celebrate that our democracy, you know, that has fought for all these things so we can you know, celebrate trivial things like women's rights. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, I, I just don't know who was briefing him on that as well. Like, yeah, <laughs> just think the... before you speak, again, like, there are people that are literally losing their family in Myanmar right now and I'm sure many other countries where their internet is cut off, they can't contact people and they're getting shot at, they're being murdered in their homes and people who are migrants here also feel guilty at home um, being here because yeah. their family, they can't do anything to help. And it's disgusting that Morrison decided to compare that to to um, a woman's march, which was so peaceful. Yeah, I think we're forgetting that it offends a lot of people, not just women protesting. It's also those people in Myanmar. Finally, before we go, what was your fave poster from (laughs) the rally? Well, I always go to... I try to go and be an ally as much as possible and I always want to make my own posters, but people just come up with the best. And one of my favourite ones, being the theatre kid that I am, was ScoMo, keep your filthy paws off my silky laws. That's a good one. We love Rizzo here. (laughs) And, yeah, it was just perfect at the time. Yeah, that sounds like a great one. I love the disgusting. That was great. (laughs) Love that. Um, Beck, thank you so much for your time and for your insight. You're welcome. If this affected you, um, the topics that we've discussed right now, please call 1-800-RESPECT. That was the Backchat producer, our beloved Rebecca Manny-Bogg, recapping the March for Justice rally against sexual violence that took place on Monday this week. And that's all we have time for on the show this week. A massive thank you to our producers, Charles Rushforth, Justina Baster, Millie Roberts and Rebecca Manny-Bogg. This has been Backchat, your go-to wrap for news and current affairs on FBI 94.5. And hey, stick around for Limbs Akimbo. We'll catch you next Saturday at 9.30am. Yeah.